That's the only way you get it. You got to ask for it, right? That's good. Um, a guy named Pete Briscoe shared a story about his dad named Stuart. And uh, man, I, I heard this story and I was compelled by it. Stuart Briscoe was a pastor in the Midwest in Wisconsin in the 60s and 70s. Uh, when you think about a, a non-denominational Bible church kind of a place in Wisconsin, you think of, you know, hardworking, you think middle class, you think come to church with coat and tie, you think of choir with the robes, and we bring our Bibles to church, and we put our kids in kids' ministry, and they learn the stories of Jesus, and, and that's what this church was like, very much so. There was a family in the church who had a young adult son, and and uh, he was struggling in his faith. He was trying to figure out, man, is the way I've been raised and all of this, is it, is it true? And can I embrace Jesus Christ? And so this uh, father came to Stuart, the pastor of the church, and said, will you lead a Bible study at our home on Wednesday nights for our young adult son and any of his friends who might have questions about Jesus? And, and would you do that? And Stuart said, you bet. And so he started to lead this Bible study, and after a period of time, um, there were 200 people showing up for this Bible study, and they were all hippies. Um, I don't know if you understand, like some of us maybe don't know a hippie, but hippies are bell-bottoms, flower power, the Volkswagen van, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all of that stuff, right? There were 200 of them. They're there sitting crisscross, barefoot, loving the Jesus that they're hearing about. And so that happens, and Stuart goes on. He's, he's teaching this one crowd on Wednesday night, and then on Sunday morning, he goes to a radically different crowd that are coat and tie, choir, our Bibles, all of that. Well, one day on Wednesday night, uh, Stuart's sitting there, and one of the hippies says, can we come to church? And Stuart's like, you bet. Let's, let's go Sunday. And so that Sunday, no kidding, according to the, the lore of Stuart's son, Pete, that 200 hippies showed up at a church with 300 folks wearing coat and tie, wearing a Bible, and singing hymns. And it was amazing to say the least. Stuart Briscoe wrote this book as a result of that Sunday. Uh, It was published in 1972. Uh, The story is this. When he got home, his phone rang off the hook because church members wanted to know who invited them. Yeah. Where did they come from? Are we okay with them influencing our children? All kinds of stuff that he had to deal with and light of this. And so as you think about the clash of culture, um, when Stuart wrote this book, again, it's probably pretty outdated, but it starts with a poem up front. I thought I'd read the poem to you. He says, how would you describe them? The beautiful people? Dirty, long-haired, unwashed, good-for-nothing, communist-inspired louts? Peace-loving, socially responsible, politically aware members of society? Rebellious, thankless, self-centered hooligans? Sex-obsessed, pleasure-loving, work-shy, drug-addicted layabouts, dangerous, destructive anarchists, or normal, healthy, red-blooded, hard-working kids? How would you describe them? There were more of them now than ever before, healthier because of the balance of their diets, wealthier because of the balance of payments. They travel more, see more, earn more, spend more, demand more, receive more. 
They're publicized, criticized, idolized, pressurized, analyzed, shouted at, shot at, spouted at, spat at. They are to be pandered to, planned for, pleaded with, and preached about. Cheering, jeering, swinging, singing, learning, burning, hippies, yippies, nudity, crudity, turning on, putting on, dropping out, making out, pot, pop, and pill, hairy, scary, drug scene, teen scene, obscene, the whirling world of youth. It's pretty outdated, isn't it? Meanwhile, back at the church, preachers preach. Sermons, carefully, prayerfully prepared, expositional, exegetical, dispensational, devotional, inspirational, indigestible. Information leads to illustration, leads to invitation, leads to integration into congregation. Membership is increased. Deacons deep, business-like and Christ-like men running a well-oiled operation, budget met, baptistry wet regularly, membership is satisfied. Tithers tithe, large tents and tiny envelopes, faithfully, cheerfully giving abundantly out of abundance, ensuring membership is comfortable. Choristers chorus, impeccably gowned and groomed with an excess of crescendos and sopranos, rising, a rousing anthem, membership is inspired. Well-dressed, well-pressed, well-blessed. Membership is dismissed, the placid world of church. Two worlds on one planet, the woolly, weird youth world, the calm, cool church world, the weak and wild world, the meek and mild world, the rebelling, revolting world, the redeemed, respectable world, the out-of-sight world, the out-of-touch world, and never the two shall meet, but they must. Culture clash, isn't it? Culture clash. We've been having culture clashes in church for a really long time. Some of us have been wounded by culture clashes because we've clashed over what Bible translation we're going to read. We've clashed over, can we sing hymns or CCM? We have clashed over, can a guy dress like this preach? Or has it got to be a coat and tie or maybe even a clergy robe? We have clashed over it all, and there's not a doubt in my mind because we are sinful people. We will continue to clash in the future. But This clash is not started in the 70s or the 60s or even the 1600s with what we would call a culture clash of the Reformation. 20 years, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, an ultimate culture clash. We've been talking about the book of Galatians and the freedom that it brings. And if I were to describe the book of Galatians for you, it would be a culture clash. It would be a clash of cultures where you have Jews and Gentiles trying to make sense of what did Jesus Christ do for us? And is anything added to it? Is anything added to it? Do we have to look a certain way? Do the the hillbillies of the Gentiles have to take off their bell bottoms and cut their hair and not wear a tie-dye shirt? Or is the gospel enough? Amazing clash here. So let me see if I can help us make sense of it all. You know me, I'm a little nerdy, so uh, I put a map on the screen, right? So I'm going to give us a map here. I want to make sure we're, we're all kind of tracking with this idea of Galatians. And so 
You can see right up here up top, that is the area of Galatia. It is a region, and Paul goes on a missionary journey to these little churches over here, and these are Gentiles. These are people who are not Jewish. They don't care about the dietary restrictions. They don't care about circumcision. They don't care about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know Moses from anyone else. All they care about is that Paul showed up and said, Jesus Christ died for you. And this book that we're studying this semester is Paul going to these places and telling them about the gospel, and then then they are hearing something else. And where are they hearing it from? They're hearing it from down here in Jerusalem. Let me zoom in just for a moment just to this area, because I want you to see a few places before I parse it out in our text. This is Jerusalem. This would be the headquarters of the Jewish people. When I say headquarters, I mean this is the place where Judaism is. It's the promised land for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to build a temple there. They're going to worship there. They think the Messiah is going to reign from there. This is Jerusalem. It is the headquarters of the Jews. And so there is also the headquarters of Christianity. Think about that for a moment. Jerusalem is also the headquarters of Christianity. Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again in Jerusalem. The very first people to embrace Jesus Christ were Jews. The first revival, the first place where a thousand people accepted Jesus was in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell. That's where the church was started. That's where it all began. And so these folks down here are headquarters, if you will, in the same way that the White House is headquarters for the USA or Silicon Valley is headquarters for the tech industry or Texas is headquarters for real barbecue. Like that is headquarters, right? You're with me? It's headquarters. And so when you think about it, what I'm fixing to read to you is Paul distancing himself from headquarters, He says, I am preaching to you the gospel, and I didn't get it from headquarters. I didn't get it from there. I got it straight from Jesus Christ. So let me show you a few more things here. You'll notice that Paul's going to leave on his first missionary journey from Antioch. I'm going to talk more about that city here in a moment. And those of you who know Acts chapter 9, when Paul was converted from being a Christian murderer to a Christian missionary. It was in Damascus, somewhere right in here. So that's where things are taking place. Let me read a few verses for you in Galatians chapter 1. I should be in Galatians chapter 2, but I want to make sure you see a few things. Look at, look at it in verse 16. Paul says this, to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. That's what John preached last week. He said on the way to Damascus, he got knocked off the donkey and God moved on him. And when he moved on him, he embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So that he could preach to the Gentiles, so he could preach to the hippies, so he could preach to the people who didn't know the law or the diet or circumcision. That's where he was going to go. And look at what he says next. Really weird. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Why does Paul feel the need to say that? I didn't consult with anyone. I didn't go talk to anybody. I didn't go like flesh this thing out. This thing was to me from Jesus. Then he's going to say some more stuff. He says this. 
I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. I showed you Damascus on there. Paul is making it clear when I got saved, when I heard the gospel, I didn't talk to anybody and I went straight to Arabia. I didn't go to headquarters. I didn't go to Peter. I didn't go to the Jerusalem council. I didn't go to any of those people. I heard the gospel straight from Jesus. He's going to go it again. Look at it in verse 18. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem. And I got to know Cephas, or another word, name for Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days, a little over two weeks. Now, that's not long enough to get mentored. That's not long enough to get discipled. I did go to Jerusalem, but it was three years after my conversion. And when I was there, it was just like 15 days. That's it. And then look at what he says. Not only that, but I didn't see any of the other's apostles, well, except for James, the Lord's brother. I, I met him, but that's it. Why is he spending so much time distancing himself from headquarters? Why is he doing that? Here's the reason why. When Paul went into those, those first cities in Galatia and he preached the gospel, he said, you're a sinner, and Jesus Christ died for you, and he was buried, and he rose again, and all you have to do is put your faith and trust in it. And when he left, those people from Jerusalem, remember the map? They came up and said, well, Paul didn't tell you everything. You see, Paul got his gospel from Jerusalem too, just like we got our gospel from Jerusalem, because you know we're headquarters. And so we need to tell you all the stuff he didn't tell you, like you're going to have to be circumcised. Sorry, fellas. Uh, you, you can't eat pork and shrimp anymore. Sorry. You're going to have to obey the Sabbath. I'm, I'm sorry. That's the way it works. And that's why Paul is so upset because they are adding to the gospel. And he spends this time saying, listen, I didn't get my gospel from headquarters. You can't tie me to that. You can't tie me to it. Matter of fact, he's going to keep going. This is the passage I should be preaching. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, but this time with Barnabas taking Titus along also. So I went three years. I was just there for a couple of weeks. I went back to preaching the gospel. 14 years he was preaching the gospel. Somewhere else. Not in Jerusalem. Not at headquarters. And he says, it's time to go back. So he goes with a guy named Barnabas. He's going to go with a guy named Titus. Verse 2, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. Somewhere in that 14 years, the Holy Spirit looks at Paul and says, I need you to go back to Jerusalem. And when you go, I want you to tell them what you've been preaching for 17 years. I want you to tell them what you've been preaching. It's going to be a private meeting. You're going to lay out the gospel, and they are going to talk about it, and y'all are going to talk about it. Really important. This is a massive meeting, massive meeting. We got to figure out, is, God, is, is Paul's gospel the right gospel, or should there be some additions? Should there be some stuff to it? Do we really have to get circumcised? So we got this private meeting going on, and then Paul changes subjects. Look at what he says next. He does this in verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, 
was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because a false brother smuggled in who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. I want to know how the secret meeting went. But in the meantime, Paul is telling you this. I brought Titus. And I want you to imagine this is Titus. I want you to imagine Titus wearing the most flared out bell bottoms in the world. Long hair, flower power, driving a Volkswagen van barefoot going through Jerusalem. And Paul's like, I got a case study here. What are y'all going to say about Titus, who's a Greek and he's not circumcised, but he's put his faith and trust in Jesus? What you going to do with my boy here? What are you going to do? You going to make him do some stuff? Is he going to have to take the bell bottoms off? You going to have to cut the hair? Is he going to have to look like us? Or y'all going to be good with it? And what do we see here? Apparently there were people spying on Paul because they had heard he's just preaching the gospel without all of this Jewish law. And so they are trying to compel Titus. They're saying, Titus, get circumcised. Titus, get circumcised. And one of the greatest verses in your New Testament that you'll never see on a coffee cup is, he was not compelled to get circumcised. (laughs) Super, it's great. Because that means what? There's nothing added to the gospel. This is is major news. This is great news. And all of these people that are pounding and pounding and pounding, Paul says, I preserved it. We preserved it. We stood up to these people. We stood up to them and told them, no, we're not going to make Titus do that. He can keep the bell bottoms on. He can keep the shirt on. He doesn't have to obey our rules and our forms and our stuff. He has embraced Jesus Christ, and that's good enough. He's done that. So then Paul goes back to the secret meeting. Verse 6. Now, from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. Paul's got a little zip to him, doesn't he? Man, he finally gets there. He's like, "Ah, you guys don't impress me. Got my gospel from Jesus, but fine, I'll lay it out here. He goes, they added nothing to me. I told them what I was doing. I told them for the last 17 years, I've gone to these places, and I've told them, all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And they added nothing. They didn't say, well, you got to be circumcised. They didn't say that. They didn't say, well, you got to. Added nothing. Let me tell you why that's a big deal. Can I draw up on my board a little bit and uh, be nerdy? Let's do it. Thanks for your permission. Um, This is what I got. Um, When we think about uh, Jewish life, it is a small sliver. And when I think of this, I I want you to think of Paul. I want you to think of Peter, um, Jesus, the disciples. It is a small sliver of their life. And that small little sliver included so much. These Jews had this these boundaries, and the boundaries were the law, they were circumcision, they were Sabbath, they were um, your diet. All of these things 
were the boundaries, and they were God-given boundaries. And in those God-given boundaries, they say, you are going to adhere to these things, and you are going to be separate, set apart from all the other nations. And so this is why I don't want to be too hard on these guys. This is all they've ever known. Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2 was circumcised. Like, this is a big deal for them. This is their life. And so, you have Jesus Christ comes along, and when Jesus comes along and he dies on the cross, like I told you a minute ago, the very first Christians were Jews. And so they became Christians. They were Christ followers. And in that, they now had to do some wrestling. Well, are we Jewish? Are we Jewish Christians? Are we just Christians? Do you see this? you see how big of a deal this is? Like, I know we want to read Galatians and just kick them out immediately, but this is their entire life. Not only that, this is in your Bible. Exodus, Genesis. This is a massive change for them. Massive change. So they do what they know to do. They say, we're going to keep on circumcising, and we're going to keep on following our diet, and we are going to keep on managing and watching and resting on the Sabbath. And so then you got people in Galatia, Ephesus, Rome, and Paul goes and tells them, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish Christians say, well, if you, if you really, you really want to be us, then what you have to do is you have to get circumcised fit in our little sliver of life. If you really want to be us, you got to follow the Sabbath. And if you really want us, sorry, no more bacon. You are with us now. And they were forcing them in. And so when Paul says, I met with the bigwigs, and they said, I had to add nothing, nothing, they are removing the arrows. And they are saying, Jesus Christ is enough. That's pretty good, isn't it? That is, the, that is the beauty of this passage. It is just Christ. You don't have to add anything else to it. Easier said than done for these guys. Let's see what happens next. So Paul has this secret meeting, and not only do they say they added nothing to it, verse 7. On the contrary, not only did they not add anything to me, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the, the circumcised. Not only that, they sit back and say, Paul is meant to go be a missionary to the Gentiles. He's meant to do this, just the same way Peter is meant to go to the Jews. This is a profound. They are validating Paul's ministry. He goes on in verse 8, since the one at work in me and one is capital O, that must be God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. The one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, the brother of Jesus, Cephas, Peter, and John recognized his pillars. I don't know who you follow in Christian life. Tim Keller, John Piper, and Billy Graham. Like, put them there. Yeah, whoever your bigwigs are, they just looked at Paul and said, you're good to go. Only the gospel that you're preaching is fine. Matter of fact, go to the hippies. And they said, he gave them the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles. 
and they came as they came to the circumcised. This is, this is great. This means that we can have separate callings in the same gospel. That means we can have separate callings and the same gospel. That means there, there is a group of people in the next month who are going to go into a prison and they're going to do Emmaus ministries and they are going to preach the gospel to people inside the prison. And they're going to do that while there's another group of people who are going to preach the gospel to a group of folks downtown who aren't going to wake up on a Sunday morning, but they'll wake up on a Sunday night and they'll show up in there and it'll be a different group from this group. But as long as we're preaching the gospel, we're not mutually exclusive. That's pretty cool, isn't it? There, is a, there are churches all around this morning, Mount Hora being one of them, that had an orchestra and a choir. And I can tell you, as they preach the gospel, it is not mutually exclusive from the church down the road that preached with lights and smoke and the guy stood behind a motorcycle. If we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the audience could be different, but the gospel is not mutually exclusive. So some of y'all are going to go into a school and you're going to have an audience I'm never going to have. Go preach the gospel. Some of you are going to go to work and you're going to have an audience I'm never going to have. Go preach the gospel. Some of us are going to have ministries that we're, none of us are ever, other ones are ever going to have. Go preach the gospel because it is not mutually exclusive. Aren't you glad we don't all have to look the same? And we can go after demographics and people and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ? Some people say, there's too many churches. Ah, no, not enough. Not enough. That's what we want to do. And that was just for free. I hadn't even got to the good part yet, right? You might sit back and say, well, Russell, it sounds like the secret meeting solved everything. I mean, the secret meeting was these guys were coming from Jerusalem, and they're telling you got to add to the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. And matter of fact, I went to Jerusalem, and they told me I didn't have to add to the gospel. Many of you might be asking the same question I'm asking. Why are there four more chapters in Galatians? Why are there four more chapters to deal with something that the secret meeting got taken care of? Why in the world would we still need four more chapters to talk about it? Here's the reason why. Because it is really easy to say that there's nothing to be added to the gospel. It is really difficult to not add something to the gospel. Anytime we take our forms, traditions, and preferences, and we hold it equal to or above the gospel, we don't have the gospel anymore. And so, let's take a look at verse 11. So why is there more? Look at verse 11. But. Uh, all of this went great. All of this was fantastic. You're doing great, Paul. But. When Cephas, another, word for, another name for Peter, Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that's a culture clash. Peter, the original, the one, Peter, the guy, Peter and Paul are now going toe-to-toe, face-to-face. And this is the same Peter that in the few verses before said, you're good, Paul. You keep on doing your thing, Paul. Don't add anything to the gospel, Paul. You're doing great. 
what in the world is happening where he says, but Peter came to Antioch and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What was he doing? Verse 12. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Boy, we just named off a lot of people here. Let's see if I can help us. Remember I circled Antioch on the map? Antioch in your Bible, if you want to read this story this week, Acts 9, 10, 11, 12, it's the very first place where Gentiles become Christians. It's the first place where Gentiles embrace the gospel. But Antioch is also full of Jews who are trying to escape persecution. And so they're going to Antioch and these Jewish Christians are there and these Gentile Christians are there and they're starting to mix and mingle. And anyone who is anyone is going to Antioch to see what's happening. So Peter shows up because Peter's like, what in the world is going on? Matter of fact, Peter's half the reason some of them are getting saved. Barnabas is in Antioch and he says, go get Paul. Paul's going to love this. Paul is going to love the fact that these Gentiles are getting saved. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he hears about it. He sends some men down there. And then there's this circumcision group who are probably incredibly violent and are going to physically make the Jews obey the law or physically punish the Gentiles who are Christian who are not obeying the law. We got a lot going on here, right? This is a mess. It's a mess. And oh, by the way, it says Peter pulled his chair up to the table and ate with the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. A big old tablecloth comes down from heaven in a vision to Peter, and God says, eat whatever's on that tablecloth, which is all the stuff he wasn't allowed to eat as a Jew. And Peter says no. Second time, God says eat. Peter says no. Third time, Peter says, man, those baby back ribs are looking pretty good. Let's try <laughs> So he's in. He's in. He's in. So he shows up to Antioch with that vision in mind and says, I can eat with these people. I can eat with them. So let me, let me uh, draw some more for you real quick. Got it? Can I do that? Thanks for letting me do it. Um, I saw this. Scott McKnight in his commentary talked about the players in this passage, and for me it was really really helpful. On this side, I'm going to put liberals, and on this side, I'm going to put conservatives. And I've already made you really nervous, haven't I? (laughs) And I'm going to put in the middle all the good old moderates. So um, just to help us all take a deep sigh right here, when I say liberal, this is what I mean. A liberal is anyone who wants to liberate us from something in our past that is bad. And a conservative is anyone who wants to conserve something in our past that is good. The problem is, is when liberals want to liberate us from something in the past that is good, and conservatives want to conserve something from the past that is bad, right? So that's the the idea we have here. And I believe in this section, believe it or not, that Paul is a liberal. And here's the reason why he's a liberal. Because he is trying to liberate the Jews and the Gentiles from something bad in the past. And what is that bad thing in the past? That the only way you can have salvation is you have to add the law to the gospel. And we would all agree that's bad, isn't it? So he's liberating them from that. Not only is he a liberal in this passage, but we also have the Gentile Christians. 
Gentile Christians probably don't even know what they are. All they are is they're just happy to have embraced the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, my life is changed because of him. Now, we have some conservatives in this passage. The conservatives over here would be men from James. I told you James sent his crew down there. He's wanting to see. Apparently, James isn't fully bought into all this. He hasn't had a vision like Peter. He's still trying to figure out. So what's he trying to do? I'm trying to conserve. I'm trying to conserve that maybe these laws are necessary to have salvation and right standing before God. That's what he's trying to do. And then you have the circumcision group. The circumcision group is coming along saying, you bet we're going to conserve the law, and we might just beat you if you don't do it. That doesn't sound good, does it? So now we have those two groups. Who are our moderates in the passage? Our moderates would be Peter. He pulls his chair up over here to the table, and he's enjoying the surf and turf, the ribs and the, the, the shrimp that he's never had to eat before. Then we have Jewish Christians. We have these Jewish Christians. I'm going to show you here in a minute. Apparently, they were eating with the Gentiles too. Let's go. They were moderates. And then we have Barnabas. And Barnabas is a moderate. Let me show it to you. He says this. For he, Peter, regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came... Peter withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Can you believe Peter would change his mind? If you know your Bible, Peter's famous for that, isn't he? At least two previous times before. He's changed his mind. I don't want to be in trouble. I don't want the Jews to get me. I don't want to be punished. So he slides over there and look what happens next. Verse 13, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by it. We get over here and Peter says, I'm going back with the Jews. Jewish Christians say, I'm going with Peter. Barnabas is like, well, I like you, Paul, but I like Peter. Ah, let's go with Peter. So we thought this thing was settled, except for the fact that when the Jews show up, Peter's like, well, I know you guys embrace Jesus, but you really can't eat that anymore. And what did he just do? He added something to the gospel. You say, Russell, that's way too hard. You can't say that. Uh, let me show it to you. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone. It doesn't say, when I saw Peter eating and, you know, maybe mixing it up with the Gentiles. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, when I saw Peter, you know, maybe doing a few things he shouldn't. No. Deviating from the gospel. When you pull your chair up and you say, Gentiles, it's okay. You can eat whatever you want, and I'll prove it. I'll sit down here with you. And then when the Jews show up and say, oop, I'm not supposed to do that, you just told those Gentiles, you're really not good. You need to do something else. And watch what Paul says. He said in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? 
how can you say, you got to be Jewish, but you're going to eat at the table with them, and you only eat at the table with them when the Jews aren't around. You want to know why there's four more chapters? Because the one original chief apostle, Peter, he still can't figure it out. We got four more chapters because it is so easy to add to the gospel. It's just easy to do it. It is easy to sit there and to say, well, you ought to look like me. You ought to talk like me. You ought to fit in like me. You ought to sing like me. You ought to read like me. That's really what it ought to be. Like, if you're really a Christian, you will Have you ever said that? If you're really a Christian, if you're really a Christian, you'll read the King James. If you're really a Christian, you'll read the ESV. If you're really a Christian, you'll vote Republican. If you're really a Christian, you'll vote Democrat. If you're really a Christian, you sing hymns. If you're really a Christian and worship well, you do CCM. If you're really a Christian, you take communion every week. If you're really a Christian, you give, and you give at least 10%. If you're really a Christian, should I keep on going? If you're really a Christian, you'll be baptized like me. If you're really a Christian, you'll be dispensational and fundamental. If you're really a Christian, you'll be Calvinist. If you're really a Christian, if you're really, boy, we add all that to it, doesn't it? And before you know it, we have added this to the gospel. In all our little Pet theologies and pet projects and forms and traditions, where do they go? Here's the gospel, and they just get right up there beside it or go above it. And guess what? That ain't the gospel anymore. Chapter 1, he said it's a different gospel when you add to it. Different gospel. Um, that Sunday, 200 hippies showed up. Next week, only 20 of them showed up. Week after that, only one of them showed up. With that one, he decided he was going to hang out. Matter of fact, he worshiped with them for a couple of months, and he even went to the membership class. Pete Briscoe, I'm listening to him tell the story about his dad. He said he showed up to the membership class, barefoot crisscross, listening to the, listening to the guy talk about what's it like to be a member at that church. Not only that, but he says, I'm up, I'm in, I'm signing up. And at their church, in order to become a partner or a member, you had to get on the stage and share your story. Aren't you glad we don't do that, right? Get on the stage. So it was his turn. He got on that stage wearing bell bottoms, long hair, flower power, right? And he says, two months ago, two months ago, all I cared about was sex, drugs, and rock and roll and any other drug I could get my hands on. I was irresponsible and didn't care about much. And then I met Jesus. And my eyes are changed. My life has changed. I just see everything so different now. And I'm standing before you guys because I've learned about Jesus. And all I know is I need to learn from y'all because y'all have done this longer than I have. And and I need to be a part of other Christians. And so I'm here, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't like any of you. He goes, I don't like any of you because for the last two months, the looks, 
the way we've been treated, unwelcomed. But I know Jesus tells me I got to love, and so I'm, I'm going to love you, and I got something to learn from you. Now, I will say this. If anybody would like to maybe meet, I, I, would, I would enjoy maybe meeting one-on-one and maybe discussing how there's a few things we might could do different. Old man in the back raised his hand. He was the guy who led the membership class. He said, I got you. And slowly but surely, they began to meet and learn from each other, and the hippies started coming back. Started coming back because the church started to learn that maybe bell bottoms and sitting crisscross on the floor without shoes on doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And they started to come back, and Stuart Briscoe retired from that church. And the ministry that came out of that was great, but the guy that took over for Stuart Briscoe, according to his son, was one of those hippies that showed up on that Sunday. Pretty stinking cool, isn't it? So the last part of the, his little book that he wrote about that Sunday morning is all these kids in church. It's real, real quick. I'll read it to you. How would you explain it? The latest fad and emotional upheaval, communist infiltration, spiritual revival, all those kids in church, unashamed, unabashed, undismayed, unbelievable, listening, learning, loving, yearning, togetherness, foreverness, warm smiles, quiet eyes, serene expression, deep impression, sharing, caring, bearing, daring. But where are the old folks? Some with bowed head, faces red, some fled. Some dismayed, afraid, prayed, and stayed. Knees shaking, hearts breaking, efforts making, chances taking to believe, to receive, to achieve, to relieve. Willing, watching, waiting, worrying, saints. White hair, long hair, no hair, tinted hair, bowed in prayer. Weeping together, reaping together, sowing together, growing together. Lord's work, teamwork, worship, fellowship, relationship, stewardship, discipleship. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, above them all, through them all, and in them all. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, uh, I, I confess it is so easy for me to think my stuff is so good and my forms and my traditions.